0: From the University of Cambridge, welcome to a special episode of Declarations Human Rights Podcast. It's special because we're not actually coming to you from Cambridge. This week, we're in Washington, D.C. at a conference hosted by the Harvard Kennedy School, George Washington University, and the World Bank. Today, we're talking to Alexa Koenig, Executive Director of UC Berkeley's Human Rights Center. She's a lecturer at the UC Berkeley School of Law, where she teaches human rights and international criminal law. And she's the co-founder and director of the Human Rights Investigations Lab, which trains undergraduate and graduate students to use online open-source methods to support human rights advocacy and accountability. So let's get started. Alexa, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You're the executive director at Berkeley Law's Human Rights Center. You hold a PhD, an MA, a JD, and a BA, and you co-author the highly rated book, Hiding in Plain Sight. My question is, when do you sleep? (laughs)
1: Lately, not much, and I think um, the the pros and cons of being out here in Washington, D.C. are, of course, the pro being having this incredible conversation that we've been having for the last 24 hours or so. The con is, of course, the travel and the jet lag, and it does seem that sleep is a rare commodity these days for a lot of people working in this space.
0: As as someone who who looks up to you as a mentor and colleague in this space, I really want our audience to get to know you better. If you could tell us a little bit about how you got here and what motivated you towards a career in international law and human rights, that'd be phenomenal.
1: Thank you. Um, I have sort of an odd background. I actually started in theater, film, and television down at UCLA way back in the early 1990s. And about two years into that program, decided I really wanted to take an international perspective on the arts and how the arts could be harnessed for better communication between populations. What was also really exciting about that degree was a chance to do very interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary work. I had no idea at the time that a sort of make-your-own-major, which seemed like a lot of fun, would actually be something that 20 years later would have a lot of relevance. Because one thing that I've really seen evolve over the last decade or so is the need to bring together people from very different disciplinary backgrounds and perspectives to be able to put their different approaches together to really make change. So from that, I started working in environmental education, of all things, um, and did a lot of public relations around science and nature and teaching kids how to learn about science in a very outdoor context. I also did a lot of training of teachers about if they were working in very barren schoolyards, how do you create really engaging early science programs with just a concrete playground. from that, I ended up working on public relations for Native American tribal governments throughout the state of California. So at one point, I was working directly or indirectly with about 70 different tribes. For me, that was really my entree into the human rights space, and it was certainly a very domestically oriented one. A big piece for me as a Native Californian was realizing there were more than hundred twenty-seven tribal governments in the state of California, Um, many of whom had only recently received electricity or running water, and this was back in 1998 when I began working with them. And there was this one day when I, there was a big story that was breaking across the state, and it was that a tribe in Northern San Diego County had just gotten electricity for the first time. And I remember going out there to meet with the tribal representative, because ABC, NBC, all the big stations were gonna be descending in a few minutes, and I wanted to kind of prep, prep her for the interview and hear what story she wanted to communicate. And the first question I asked her was, so what does this mean for your tribe? And she took me down this path, and she showed me this sort of burnt-out old trailer. And she said, growing up here, we never had electricity, obviously, for light or heat. And one night, my grandmother, this was her home, was sitting in the trailer, and she had a kerosene lamp. And the wind came roaring through the windows and knocked over the lamp. And unfortunately, because we didn't have fire service or anything like that, my grandmother, unfortunately, died that night. And so what this means is that my kids are gonna have electricity to be able to do their homework and we're gonna be able to have an infrastructure that can really support um, living and making something out of this community. And so I think that for me to know that so many people had grown up so deprived in my own backyard and I hadn't realized the conditions in which people were living was a big eye-opener. The other eye-opener was I said, so how did you end up with this electricity? Was it the state or federal government? And she turned to me and said, no, actually, it's a tribe that got a casino down in southern San Diego, and they actually provided the resources for tribes like ours that didn't have that opportunity. So once again, the state and federal government were refusing to do anything to improve the lives of other people. Um, And instead, it was about economic diversification and economic development and tribes helping each other. So long story short, I began working in politics um, through this public relations lens, trying to communicate some of the stories that were native to California in, in very tangible ways to surrounding communities that knew very little about those stories. Um, I decided eventually, after two years of working in politics, that one of the ways I could potentially help with the situation was to go get a law degree. The last day of the the political campaign that I'd been working on, the campaign manager turned to me and said, Alexa, you're five feet tall, you're blonde, you're female, you're young, because I was quite young at the time, and she said, the only way you're ever going to get the California state legislature to listen to you is to go get every big fat degree you can possibly get and make them listen. So I enrolled in night school for law school, um, and after a, about a year of doing the night program, realized it'd be a lot more fun to get out in three years instead of four, so I went to the Czech Republic to get do part of my law degree and catch up. Um, during my time in law, right after I came back from the Czech Republic, 9-11 happened. And that, again, was sort of a wake-up call and another introduction to human rights work and human rights work from a domestic lens. I became very concerned while taking constitutional law, civil procedure, at some of what we were seeing with the treatment of Muslim populations and communities throughout the country. I was also very disturbed by some of what I was reading about trying to link Iraq and Saddam Hussein to the events of 9-11, which we, of course, know that, that there was no connection. But these narratives were playing out in the major media, and it was playing out even from the White House. And so to see the ways in which politics and um, publications could really be perverted in terms of the stories that they were telling to really mobilize hate against particular communities was deeply disturbing. So I ended up teaching law for a few years, and once again became very frustrated at the limitations of law on its own to do what it was claiming to do. It's, it's, we have these very progressive laws that claim to defend populations, but that trickle down often never happens between law in its most idealistic form. So things like constitutional protections, one of the things we were beginning, of course, to hear about was the abuse of detainees in Iraq and in Afghanistan and, of course, in Guantanamo. Um, We have these really progressive legal systems that are supposed to protect people from abuse by states, and yet at the same time, we were seeing this disjunct. So I decided to enroll in a Ph.D. program at UC Berkeley. I'm very lucky I got in because it was the only place I applied, Um, so I'm not quite sure how I scored on that one, but I got into their jurisprudence and social policy program. It's very much about taking different disciplines and using those methods to study why there's this gap between law at its most aspirational and how it plays out in practice. So I had a choice of discipline. I, um, it's basically a law and policy program. I started in economics, then went to political science, and then landed on sociology as sort of my methodological toolkit of choice.
2: Sure, Mm -hmm. so like through that incredibly windy road from politics yes. and the arts to Native American <laughs> yes. PR and Iraq war narratives. Like, mm-hmm. what do you draw on nowadays in your work from mm-hmm. those very interdisciplinary perspectives?
1: I think there are definitely several themes that emerge from a, a background that made zero sense to me back in you know 2008 when I was starting as a Ph.D. student. Um, one, I think, was a deep commitment to education and trying to help figure how you motivate people to change behavior. Another piece was definitely seeing law as a tool for change, but wanting to to figure out how we improve the process of law so it's really responsive to everyday life. Um, Media was a big part of it. I think starting in film and having studied film and communications and theater, Um, How these different narratives played out in media was really concerning and interesting. I actually applied to go to the journalism school at Berkeley, and unfortunately that I didn't get into. Um, But journalism has always captivated me, I think, because of that background in communications. One project that I started back in 2008, right around the time I was starting the PhD program, was something called the Witness to Guantanamo Project. The lead researcher on that at the University of San Francisco was Peter Jan Honigsberg. And the project was set up to basically do filmed interviews of detainees as they left Guantanamo Bay to hear about their experiences in detention. And it eventually spread to also include taped interviews with people who'd been guards, with people who'd been lawyers, to really capture the whole story of Guantanamo Um, The purpose behind it was really twofold. One, to let people know what was going on, because at the time there was very little reporting, at least in the mainstream media. And the second was to potentially build a record for legal accountability. So could we capture the stories of these individuals now, so if there was ever going to be some kind of legal process for torture or for some of the other um, allegations that were coming out from Guantanamo and elsewhere, that we would have some kind of record to fall back on. So when I was at in, doing the PhD program, um, there was actually one day where a couple friends of mine were supposed to be working for the Human Rights Center. And they were supposed to work on a Guantanamo project. And they came running over to me because they, last minute, had to pull out of the project. And they said, Alexa, we know you've been doing war on terror stuff. Any chance you'd want this job? Um, I was at a dinner party. I happened to be there with the head of the human rights law clinic, Laurel Fletcher, sat down with her, submitted my resume at like midnight that night, and found out early the next morning that I had the job. So I began working at UC Berkeley with researchers there, Eric Stover and Laurel Fletcher, on their research into the stories of detainees. And so I was doing these two Guantanamo projects back to back. was incredible. Yeah. It was a fascinating project. I think to, um, it's very humbling to hear the stories of people at their most vulnerable. But what really came across in a lot of these stories was how critical it is to hold on to hope. And I think that was a common theme is that people found strength in very different places, but they all found it. I think it was sometimes after they were released, which we normally see as sort of the happy ending of a story actually is the beginning of some of the hardest aspects of detention. Even though you're no longer locked up, I think when you realize how few prospects you have afterwards and how much the stigma of having been a detainee can haunt you in any community that you return to or that you're sent to, Um, that's when the lack of hope I think really becomes most daunting.
2: Right. So how did they respond to being interviewed? Did that give them hope that their story was being heard?
1: I think it was mixed and mixed in a couple of ways that are really important. One narrative that came across were people saying, you know, there's a lot of people coming from the West and the North who are asking for our stories and now they're writing books and they're making money off of this and they're really benefiting from the research but what's really being done to help the people who you're talking to and for me as a young researcher at the time or someone who was a researcher in training i think that was a really important lesson to learn that to be entrusted with the stories of people that are extraordinarily sensitive we have an ethical obligation to, to really understand what individuals want done with that stories and to help use the privileges that we have to help make sure that happens. Absolutely.
0: I think one of the sort of similar experiences that I often draw on when, when we're talking about hope and when we're talking about sort of, you know, what is the appropriate thing to do in these contexts when dealing with vulnerable populations is, is a short time that I spent as a translator in uh, Calais refugee camp. And when folks who don't speak the language of refugees are approached by them, they're smiling and they're saying, how are you? But when you speak their, their own language, they'll tell you, what are you doing here? Why don't you go home and, and put pressure on your government and your local councils? And the question is there, like, what do you do to generate the kind of hope that something is, is being done, as well as still understanding that, that some of the work that is happening in terms of, getting these uh, stories documented as well as providing with some humanitarian aid is still vital,
1: right? Right. Absolutely.
0: Negotiating between that. And I wonder, like, what, how have you sort of negotiated that within yourself? And and do you find that there are particular practices that you draw on to, um, I guess, augment hope?
1: You know, that's a really Good question. I think one piece of it, at least methodologically, is really thinking through the chronology of letting someone tell their story and making sure, and I know most researchers, or hopefully many researchers do this, but to make sure that you help the person walk through their story and end with a more positive note and an aspirational look at the future. Of course, for some people who are in the midst of trauma, it's not always possible to end on some positive note or aspirational piece, but I think really allowing people to take control of the interview and end with the story that they wanna end on can be really critical and making sure that, it, that as the interviewer, you're as respectful as possible of that timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing we did ask a lot of um, former detainees was sort of what do you want for the future, which I think can be a way to orient people towards a positive, more hopeful outlook. I also found it really interesting that a lot of former detainees, when asked what they would say to the American people um, now that they were out and how they felt about America and the American people, a good percentage of them actually didn't hate America or hate Americans. Mm -hmm. I think there was a broad, at least spoken, um, acknowledgement that Americans were not the government and that there was a difference between the two. I think there was also an understanding that communities make mistakes and that leaders make mistakes, which I was also surprised to hear. Um, Of course, that was, I think, a little bit more tempered. Some people were, of course, very angry at the American government and others were less so.
0: That's a phenomenal story. And I I, want to draw more more on this. But unfortunately, I got to move on to my other questions. (laughs) Of course. Um, I mean, we could do like four different episodes on this. Uh, so, so you've notably taken an, an innovative approach to human rights investigative work, particularly as there's still a lack of consensus as to the validity of social media as actual evidence in a court of law. As such, it's very interesting to us to have seen the digital Verification Court emerge out of Berkeley and spread to the five or six campuses that it's currently at. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what the uh, DVC is and what it does and why it's so important in this moment?
1: So the Digital Verification Corps is a project that was put together by Amnesty to basically harness the incredible talents of students at campuses around the globe. And the background or genesis, as I understand it, was really to figure out how can you provide the additional capacity for human rights researchers that they need when they have limited funding and limited time. So by by giving students a real-world opportunity to support the research of amnesty leaders, Um, it was sort of a win-win, at least in theory, and it certainly has played out that way in practice, where students had a chance to do the very labor-intensive work of doing digital discovery, so searching for content online that could potentially provide valuable information around human rights abuses and war crimes happening around the world, and also do verification. So obviously, a big phenomenon in the last decade or so has been the incredible increase of videos coming out of conflict zones. Those videos are incredibly valuable pieces of content for telling the story of what's happened in these very um, deprived places. But at the same time, how do you know that a video that claims to be from Syria in 2018 is that and not a video from Syria in 2012 or a video from some very other place? So I think learning the basic skills around verification has been a win for the students because I do believe that many people who've gone through the Digital Verification Core program have really learned to be more responsible consumers and producers of news and information at the same time that they are doing this very labor-intensive, time-consuming work and hopefully sparing other nonprofit partners in the space from having to do that themselves. We were very lucky to work closely with the Amnesty leadership team, so Scott Edwards, Melina Moraine, Sam Dubberly, Christoph Kirtle, who all came and did a bunch of training with our students. I think we never expected the incredible groundswell of interest from the UC Berkeley campus. We had planned to start the project with five to 10 students, and it ended up mushrooming to 42 in that first semester. And it was basically us by us forcing the numbers down as much as possible that we even got to 42. So we've since grown to about 80 students from 22 different disciplines. Um, They speak collectively over 30 languages. And we have now expanded our work, at least on the Berkeley campus, to still be very much a part of the Digital Verification Corps and we very much um, honor and respect and appreciate that relationship. We've also started working, though, with a number of other nonprofits and also human rights lawyers. And that's the part that I think we're really trying to explore how can we help increase the validity of this kind of content so it can have the maximum possible weight in a court of law.
0: Exactly. So this is, this is where it gets interesting for me because you said you had an interest in, in journalism and sort of, you know, telling stories and obviously you've, you've taken up a, a career in law and, uh, you know, here you have a real opportunity to to bridge those gaps through the Digital Verification core. and I'm wondering the perspectives that lawyers have on the DVC versus the perspectives that you know other organizations that are more of campaigning or advocacy nature mm-hmm. have on the work that you, you guys are doing?
1: I think the fundamental heart of this work is the same whether you're a lawyer or a journalist, in the sense that truth really is our currency And unless we have tremendous faith in the facts in front of us, we really can't do our jobs and do them well. So this idea of really needing to verify all content, really understand its origins, be able to document that information, and to explain to the person we're talking to, whether it's a judge or the general public, how do we know that this is what we claim that it is, um, that's, that's at the heart. The differences, though, come with just the experience of using this kind of content in the forum. So I think journalists are ahead of the curve. They've been using social media much longer than lawyers have. If you look at certainly the pioneering work of groups like Storyful back in, you know, from 2010 on, and the ways that they were combing social media very early on and detecting breaking news well before some of the major media outlets, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that they've gotten a certain degree of utility out of it and a certain comfort with this idea of verification. In the legal space, you know, we are so oriented around getting three kinds of information. We need physical evidence. We need testimonial evidence, so the stories of witnesses and survivors. And then um, we need the documentary evidence, which has traditionally been things like faxes and you know contracts. Now that documentary evidence has expanded out to incl- include things like emails and videos and photographs. One of the ways we started realizing, at least at the Human Rights Center, that there was a huge need to further explore how this information could be harnessed for legal purposes was in our work with the International Criminal Court. So back in 2012, we were noticing that a few very high-profile cases were falling apart at very early stages of prosecution. And the fundamental question we began asking was why, when so many people out there know what happened. And we sent a PhD student in history to the court. She spent a summer there, and she went through all the court filings, and what she found was that the court was over-relying on two things. NGO reports, which the judges were saying, look, this isn't evidence, this is basically research that's been done by some other actor. You need to redo this yourself. Mm -hmm. And two, you're over-relying on witness testimony because while the survivor stories are always gonna be at the heart of the prosecution, um, without the corroborating information, those those survivor stories could be threatened, holes could be poked in them, people could be terrorized into not testifying. They are often testifying against very powerful actors and sometimes state actors. So we began trying to think, how can we help the prosecution team understand what emerging technologies are out there that can help corroborate this information? So in 2012, we hosted a first conversation at the court where we brought in people who were pioneering remote sensing and satellite imagery and big data analytics and video forensics, et cetera. And it was sort of the early days of thinking about how can these new technologies come into the courtroom, at least for international criminal legal purposes. And in the beginning, there was just some of the investigators and some of the prosecution team in the room. And by the end of that workshop, it was standing room only because so many people were intrigued by the potential of these technologies to really have impact. So after that first workshop, We then were told by the Office of the Prosecutor that they were very interested in better understanding how digital technology in particular could be harnessed. And that's when we began further working with a lot of the great nonprofits out there like Witness and Vidair and Institute for Gender Justice that were really figuring out how do we use these new video capabilities on smartphones or tiny little lightweight cameras that can be carried around to capture what's going on in the ground in areas that are very difficult to access. So we began trying to bridge those two worlds, where there was such great training going on and new tools being developed, but what we were hearing from the legal actors was, we're getting too much content, we can't possibly go through it all, and then the second problem is we're getting the wrong content. We're getting pictures of the bodies on the ground, where the bomb exploded the building, but we we have plenty of crime-based evidence what we need are two things we need lead evidence that will get us to more witnesses and we need linkage evidence that will tie the body on the ground or the bombed out building to the highest level person who was involved in this process not the trigger puller and not the actual person who may have launched the weapon but we need to get the general or the president of the country Mm -hmm. so beginning to think through how can you do that with film and video and other imagery um, became a big challenge, and you've really seen leaders emerge in the space to think through and pioneer how to train people to capture that kind of content.
2: Well, What does that evidence look like? Is it just a stack of videos and tweets, or how do you go through it?
1: I think that's something we're all figuring out right now. So one of the really exciting time, things about being a lawyer in the space at this moment is it's sort of a Wild West. I think there's a knowledge that there's a lot of methods that can be used to harness digital content, whether you're combing Twitter or Facebook or YouTube. But there's still really big questions about how do you adequately preserve this content? How do you make sure that you maintain some form of chain of custody or at least have transparency around how you captured the information? So that if this goes into a court of law, you're going to need to have an expert witness who can come in and say, here's how I got this. Here's how I know it's authentic. Here's what we did to test that. Um, And without that, we're just not going to be as strong in terms of legal practice. One of the things we did recently was host a workshop in Italy, and it was really our fourth in the series of working with the International Criminal Court and a lot of NGOs to say, all right, what needs to happen next to give this content greater weight and to really help mature open source investigations, open source information collection. So this pulling together of content from social media, et cetera, to make sure that it follows some kind of legal framework. We've been thinking about it a lot as how DNA analysis got introduced into courtrooms back in the 80s and 90s. It was their DNA um, analysis was out there as a methodological practice, but how you could use it for actually getting accountability for criminal acts was sort of a bridge that had to happen. So we're really seeing this as a similar process of trying to bring some basic standards to the space so we can say this is a good investigation or this is one we just can't rely on. Um, because again it really all comes down to trust.
0: Some of the methods that, that you guys are using which are really interesting just to tie it to you know some of the larger uh, perpetrators in this space include things like, identifying the particular types of weapons that are used Mm -hmm. in in videos, as far as I understand, Mm -hmm. and uh, geospatial analysis, as well as uh, geolocation, and so on and so forth. Could you talk through some of the techniques that you
1: Sure, so we're very lucky to be learning from some of the best people out there, Um, some of the members of the Bellingcat team, Syrian Archive, uh, we write, We have a new director of technology at the Human Rights Center, Phelan McMahon, who was doing a lot of this work for the International Criminal Court for a while, and before that it's Storyful, who really helped our team better understand the range of methods that are out there. That can include everything from using TweetDeck to monitor different tweet threads, to um, learning how to do advanced searches on Facebook and other platforms, using things like SunCalc to to determine time potential time of day, to using um, what is it satellite imagery and using different dates to try and narrow down the date when a video was likely taken. I think the most interesting thing for me is it's really like a giant puzzle of how many pieces of content are out there, and can you ultimately, just like any good researcher would, kind of start pulling together that information until you start going around in circles and go, okay, we have a consistent theme here, and we kind of have exhausted this universe. I think we have a very coherent story. A big piece of this from a research perspective, though, will also be making sure that we develop a community of practice on open source investigations for legal accountability and that we have a strong system of peer review. So I think if if we look at what it has historically taken to get different methods accepted as scientific methods in courts of law, it really take ensure you need to ensure that you have people who can check each other's work and develop that community of practice.
0: And also to have a framework for through which I guess some of the tools on which we depend on mm-hmm. like Facebook and Twitter yes. and YouTube don't take off content that's useful for us right exactly like that's the other part of the coin um and i know you, we've, we've all sort of had problems with this but could you come up with a few examples on how this
1: plays out in terms of the takedowns yeah. or in terms of, so there have been a few different things that have happened one is of course that youtube as we all know have has begun to shut down dif- different channels when they have found that certain channels are violating their terms of service or their community guidelines. And now with the automation of that practice, it seems that it's happening at a scale that we just hadn't seen before this past summer. And so one of the challenges is now really communicating with these tech platforms, here are some competing considerations and issues going on in the space that we want you to be thinking about one of the things really driving this sort of spike in takedowns has been the concern of a number of governments around terrorism. And so the idea is that there's tremendous pressure right now on Facebook, YouTube, etc., to take down content that may be terrorism-related. And of course, there are these huge fines that have now been put out there in in several European countries that if YouTube doesn't take down that content, say, within an hour, then they can have You five, $50 million fines, depending on context. So one of the things that I'm hoping as a global community of practice can be talking about is how do we begin to help these tech companies better understand, and the governments better understand, the competing interests between privacy, um, access to information so we can get accountability and stop some of these crimes from being perpetrated, and um, kind of freedom of expression issues. And I see those as three huge social interest areas that are very much competing with each other right now. And I think the anti-terrorism narrative is winning and possibly with good reason. But we we need to understand when the other two should be prioritized also.
2: Yeah, drawing on platform accountability, uh, Matt has told me that you're working on an article that talks about the human rights implications of the hashtag delete Facebook movement. Um, So in the aftermath of Cambridge Analytica, no relation, and allegations that Facebook's (laughs) improperly handled user data, it's understandable that people have increasingly become sort of anti-Facebook. At the same time, though, some communities really depend on Facebook and platforms like it in ways that aren't necessarily replaceable, or at least not easily. So is going full anti-Facebook a futile attempt, and is it potentially damaging to marginal communities?
1: I think we need to have more conversations about this, honestly. I've been surprised that there hasn't been more of a consideration of what's happened in the Cambridge Analytica case from a human rights perspective. So I think the privacy conversation has dominated. And from a privacy perspective, I think a lot of people are seeing this as a chance to say to Facebook, OK, if you're not going to protect privacy or at least have basic respect in place, then we, um, we're we going to leave. and The way I began to think about it was almost around what are the responsibilities of corporations to individuals who are within their territorial borders. And I began to see a lot of analogies very much like states. So for example, our entire human rights framework is set up to hold states accountable for and responsible to the people within their territories. Corporations are technically outside that framework. However, if we think about how much our lives have changed, our practices of communication, our practices of commerce over the last 20, 30 or so years, you begin to see this shift in the ways that we organize ourselves where the nation state has been such a dominant way of us thinking about legal responsibility and social responsibility that countries are basically sovereign within their physical borders. Um, but We've now also moved into digital space, and I wonder if there's not an analogy that's a helpful one to think about the major tech companies in particular being basically like sovereign governments in a particular area. They have community service, you know, community guidelines, but those are really about how do people who come into their territories behave. And it kind of reminds me of the Wild West when you're populating new territories. You have to begin to have some form of regulation, and it's usually around citizens or other people coming into the space. But what about the obligations then as the next step, the Magna Carta or the Bill of Rights, that the person who controls that space has to the people who are residing within it. So I I really would like to see something like new constitutions being built that are platform-specific constitutions, that there's really a two-way set of responsibilities. If these companies are gonna have the wealth and the power that even small governments don't have today, maybe we should start thinking about them as having similar responsibility.
0: Just on a side note, I think yeah. it's so interesting and in how this intersects with also like how we're, you know, the the partnership on AI, because yes. like this is a space of AI, really. You know, it and is. And we're, yeah, we're not really drawing those linkages.
1: So, so that's what made me think about this analogy, because I was in a meeting and with a company that shall me nameless, and we were talking about how there's really only three or four companies that are going to control the entire basis on which AI develops. Yeah. And that is going to be a shift in global power unlike anything we have seen, at least in our lifetimes and certainly for the last, I think, several hundred years. So as they suddenly get this this power that even governments don't have, I think, you know, in, I, maybe too draconian to say that the the era of the nation state is over. But it may be the beginning of really seeing the end of that as being the this, this superpower. So maybe these major tech companies are going to be the next G8. Absolutely. And we need to think about them in that that framework.
0: Yeah, I mean, they were there at the Paris climate talks, right? Exactly. I mean, I, I mean exactly. It, we're seeing these entangled kinds of sovereignty mm-hmm. that are emerging, which I think are really interesting and really scary. Yeah. And unless we start looking at fa- space spaces like Facebook and the spaces that Facebook enable as spaces of AI and don't conceptualize AI as necessarily this Killer robot that's going to exactly. come along in the form of Arnold Schwarzenegger? It could be. Then it could be. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's usually not. Um, then, uh, then I think uh, you mm-hmm. know we just don't have enough public awareness around that to to sort of start building those movements. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think thinking through the policy implications of that much concentrated power in the in the hands of a few small corporations, whose responsibilities are usually to shareholders or to investors who have a very different timeline for their thinking around responsibility. So if they're having to be responsive on quarterly earnings or qu- quarterly profits, but governments are usually like developing over the course of years, or at least election cycles, if not hopefully thinking much further down the line than that, we've got to somehow align the temporal aspect of this with the pragmatic, and I think that's difficult. And then of course you have the dependencies that have been deliberately created in some ways by these platforms, sometimes inadvertently, but where they've really been trying to get market penetration in parts of the world that are very much riddled with conflict at the moment, where there are a lot of vulnerable people who have kind of shifted a dependency onto these platforms and are using them as a very critical lifeline to people in very other parts of the world who are out there and can potentially help. So are we just gonna shut off that lifeline I think one thing I've also been thinking about is it reminds me of Westerners and Northerners who are in conflict zones that when the conflict gets too hot, they have passports that allow them to get out of the country and to get out fast. And there's a lot of people, obviously, who are left behind who are then even more or even less protected than they were when there are others in the region. So you know, is this somewhat similar that all of those of us who have options in terms of our engagement in online space, we can afford to leave, because we have these other choices. But there are many people for whom that is their entree into the internet, or at least a major source of connectivity.
0: So levels of digital slash offline, I guess. No, I guess le- mm-hmm. levels of digital citizenship that allow us. Yes. Yeah. That's the kind a good of, way to put it. Yeah, and that's what you're talking about somewhat mm-hmm. in your article, right? That's, yes. That's coming up. And what's that title?
1: It's not titled yet. <laughs> it's not titled yet. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but I think it, it is really going to try and focus on putting this issue around Cambridge Analytica and around what's happening with the platforms into a human rights framework okay. and thinking through the human rights implications of leaving and or staying.
2: So um, you mentioned earlier that it's important to end with the story that the person wants to tell. So what's the story that you want to tell?
1: I think we're at a period in time where we need to double down on education and on the ways that we communicate with each other. I think that unless we really train this next generation in how to fact check information, how to be responsible consumers and producers of news, we are gonna be in really deep trouble because there are gonna be very powerful voices and interests that control the dialogue. And I think we're already seeing with the Parkland students, et cetera, we're seeing that there's a very powerful set of individuals coming up Mm. who really do understand how to harness social media, but we've got to keep that momentum going. Mm. I think the one other thing I'd really like to see is a breakdown in disciplines. So the journalists have been doing this for a long time, but they're working mostly with other journalists. And I think this next phase is gonna have to be journalists working with the lawyers who need to benefit from the journalist skills. I think the journalists need to learn from the lawyers about the legal frameworks and better understanding how their work can have a range of impacts that maybe they've never conceptualized. Mm. And I think all of them need to be learning from the technologists who have ways of automating things so that and helping us deal with the speed and the scale um, that we're now currently facing.
0: Alexa, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a remarkable, remarkable conversation.
1: Well, thank you both so much for having me and thank you so much for your work.